0: Hi, friends. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you like what we talk about here on the Belonging Podcasts, I think you'll really love my book. It's called Root and Ritual Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. And it is available right now wherever books are sold. It is a beautifully illustrated guide to connecting with the earth, your ancestors, and your communities as you come home to your whole self. Though we live in a radically different looking world, the needs of our bodies and spirits are the same as the ancestors we come from. I divide this book into four parts, land, lineage, community, and self, and I take you on a journey. For engaging more deeply with your life, I provide stories for my own life and I share rituals, recipes, and ancestral wisdom, journal prompts to support you on your individual and unique and sacred path. You can get more info and bonuses at rootandritualbook.com and pick it up at your favorite bookstore online or in person. Thanks for all your support. It means. The world to me. Welcome to Belonging, a podcast that explores how to come home to yourself in the age of loneliness. I'm Becca Piastrelli, your host and guide on a journey of courageous reconnection, as we explore topics like ancestral wisdom, cultivating meaningful sisterhood, living with the seasons and cycles of the earth and your body, and what it means to be a good ancestor. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Belonging the Podcast. It's Becca Piastrelli here. Really excited to be back on the mic after a little summer break. It felt really good to take a break. Actually, that's a total foreshadow for today's episode about not feeling ashamed or lazy or unworthy for taking a break, knowing that it inherently serves our work in the world. So I took myself a little break, celebrated my birthday, tended to my garden, hung out with friends, taking naps, connecting with my partner, all the things, and also was totally itching to get back on here, having so many ideas about what to share with all of you and how to continue this journey. We're all on to belonging. So I'm back today with an interview with the amazing Thais Sky. Thais is someone I became aware of on the Instagram, and she's really, really cool. So she's a life coach, an international speaker, a feminist, and mindfulness teacher. And she's also working to get her master's in clinical psychology. So she's a really compelling speaker. And she also has this really awesome foundation in clinical psychology that I think lends a really powerful perspective to what we're all working on in this work of liberation. I really, really enjoy the conversation we had today. I wanted to talk to her about specifically money. That's something I asked people what they wanted to hear about. And I got a lot of, how can we work to heal our relationship with money? I want to make more money. And I think capitalism is inherently bad. How do I do that? I feel guilty for making money. I don't, I can't ask for more money. Uh, I want to love money, but ultimately I fear money. All of these things, I feel you on. I didn't feel like I could do a solo episode on it, so I asked the amazing Thais to come on and have a chat with me about the systems we live in to define capitalism for those of us that are kind of confused about what that means, and economics sort of makes us feel confused. Uh, They make it confusing for a reason. And also this concept of worthiness, how we can feel worthy, how we can understand and reclaim our worth, how this whole phrasing, charge what you're worth, is total BS and doesn't take into account uh, the very real economic disparity, mostly in the hands of the white male majority, that this world is experiencing it's an interesting, I, what I love about Thais is she can hold a lot of complexity at the same time. She can say she doesn't know. She can say it's hard. And we weave the conversation together. I think it certainly benefited me. I hope it benefits you. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Thais. Sky. Hi, Thais. Hi. It's so good to be with you. I had so much fun recording on your podcast, Reclaim, and I'm so yes. glad I now get to be here on Belonging.
1: It's such a – it's a pleasure and honor. I love the name Belonging. I love everything you do, so I'm just so honored to be here. Yeah,
0: we officially met on Instagram. I like to tell people this because a lot of people come to me and they're like, how do you find community? I'm so isolated. Uh, Where are the cool people at? Where are the witchy people at? Where are the progressive people at? And I'm like, yes, we need it in person. And also a lot of the really cool, interesting people I meet is on
1: the internet. Yeah. And I think that it's totally, that's totally fine. And I think it's sometimes a little ableist to kind of prioritize in person Mm. when there's so many people who have lack of ability to do in person and and being online is so tremendously amazing. We just, it's just like a tool, you know, we have to just learn how to use it in a way that works for us.
0: Yeah. What's your relationship with? Social media and the internet right now. Out of curiosity,
1: well, it's evolving because you know I'm a life coach. I've been running an online business for almost ten years, and in that, in the past ten years, my perspective and I and ways that I've navigated social media has changed so much. And then I, about a year and a half ago, started getting my master's in clinical psychology, and I'm slowly adding psychotherapy to the list of services that I offer. And psychotherapy has legal, ethical bounds by which you are allowed to talk mm. about yourself on social media, you know? There's also more conversation in the in the kind of therapy world around self-disclosure and sharing stuff about yourself. And depending on who you work with and the population that you work with, you may not want them to see certain parts of your life that you were are fine with other people seeing, you know? So I've been really, really sitting and playing a lot with how I want to show up on social media. So it's amazing that you're asking this question. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's it's continually evolving but I think right now what I have really grounded myself in is that like I want to use my platform to share tools to support people rather than how amazing my life is you know mm. I, I'm just starting not that it has to be either or and people do both and that's totally great I'm just kind of orienting myself more and more to talking about the work that I do and the the knowledge that I have and sharing that versus kind of flaunting accentuating and, and, and sharing kind of more of my, I don't know, more of the personal, I guess. Yeah. Um, that's
0: interesting. You can't share, what can't you share online for
1: your clinical psychology work? Well, it really depends. It depends on the person. It depends on the clinic. It, it This is, the, Oh, I see. It depends on a lot of things, but a lot of, um, kind of, understandings of therapy is that it's not about the therapist it's about the client right yeah and so if you know what your therapist ate for breakfast and what her part you know her partner looked like and and like where she lives it just it removes kind of some of that important privacy that's necessary in order for the work to be about the client and not about the therapist
0: you're totally right
1: it's complicated you know
0: Yeah. I'm remembering in my early 20s, my partner Tim and I were seeing a a counselor, a a couples counselor. And then we saw him in the ski rental shop (laughs) with his wife and kids. And it was weird. Like Mm -hmm. it felt like a compromising of safety. Mm -hmm. And he was totally professional. But we were just like, it felt
1: weird. So Mm -hmm. I guess I can relate to that. Yeah. So it's just, again, not every therapist agrees. You know, I'm not speaking for the entire community. We are not a monolith. But it is something that's important to be considering if you're entering the mental health field, mm-hmm. which is what is the level of disclosure that you feel comfortable with. And social media, in many ways, normalizes therapists, which I think is really important. Yeah. And at the same time, I'm just becoming super conscientious of like how I want to be known in the online space with this new level of mastery that I'm getting to offer the world.
0: Well, it's so powerful what you sh- you're sharing. It's definitely resonating so much, and I, it's cool to hear you put words to the intentions behind what you're sharing. Because I'm I am in a space of trying to move away from that sort of like spontaneous. This must be shared now, ah! mm-hmm. and moving into like a deeper intention and thoughtfulness. And really, seeing it as like spell work mm-hmm. for me, you know, like what spell am I putting out into the world? Am I thinking about all people, all beings, liberation? Am I is this of service? Like things like that. So it's cool to hear that that's what's behind your work because I do feel the power in your shares, and it's certainly supported me Thank on you. my own journey. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. Okay, so one question: I'm I'm finding myself. Asking at the beginning of these interviews, it's still kind of new to me to be interviewing people on this podcast, is who are your people? And you can answer that in whatever way feels true for you.
1: Hmm. You know, I think that that's such a great question around the concept of belonging. You know, I'm an immigrant. I moved to this country from Brazil when I was seven. And in many ways, I am completely Americanized. You know, I go back to Brazil and it's so evident that I am not Brazilian (laughs) in the way that like they are Brazilian, like the way that you are when you live in a certain land for a long period of time type of Brazilian. I will be always Brazilian in blood, but um, there's just, it feels like a little bit of a disconnect there. And then I don't feel that I'm fully American either. And there's certain things about the American culture that just doesn't feel like who I am. 100%. And so, because of that, I really have navigated what it means to belong, what it means to fit in, what does it mean to have my people, what does it mean to have a community. I've always felt like I've straddled so many worlds and then kind of found myself having to sacrifice parts of myself in order to fit in to the greater whole. So, I would say that, like, what I'm finding is that sometimes it's okay to not know where you belong on the outside, because you're belonging to yourself on the inside, you know, and so when you find that kind of inner belonging, that sense of settling into your bones, that sense that no matter what comes up for you, you're going to have that container to hold it. It feels like then the people that I've surrounded myself have just become sweeter and sweeter, you know, better and better, better able to hold complexity and multiplicity and and that's been a really cool journey. So, yeah, I would say that that's an answer and not an answer at the same time. But mm-hmm. it's what's feeling good to share right now.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing your perspective on being an immigrant, and also being American, and how the kind of confusion that can create. That's something I don't have any experience in. Mm-hmm. And I find that sometimes when I'm talking about, you know, uh, connecting to your far ancestry and the lands you come from, that folks who have a an immigration story, most of us do, but like a recent immigration story and an assimilation story, right? Mm-hmm. Like this generation or the, the generation right before having to sort of drop or, or – let float away the the old cultural identity mm-hmm. and to reclaim a new one can feel a lot of confusion and resistance to what I'm talking about that I do in my own life about connecting to these lands and these peoples. And I respect that. Mm-hmm. I totally respect that because we're all just, I mean, this is about safety, mm-hmm. right? This is about immigration is about safety and security and feeling like what is home, you know? And so when you talk about belonging to yourself, and creating this new sense of belonging that may not have to do with a land that feels that resonates. That feels very true and, and important Mm. to say.
1: Yeah. I'm glad that that resonates. I think it's so important for us to really be able to recognize that every person's lived experience is so different than kind of the monolith, kind of the cultural stories It's really interesting. I mean, if we want to add to the complexity of like, who is Tai Sky, Like I'm white and a lot of Americans have a hard time reconciling with the fact that I'm from South America and yet I'm white. It's, you know, I've been called a person of color. I've been called brown because of the land in which I come from, but I'm white. And if you look at my ancestry, you know, Brazil was colonized similarly to the United States. Europeans uh, exist, you know, in Brazil as well as here. And so then we look at the fact that like, so I'm white and and I have color, like uh, my grandfather comes from Africa. So what does that mean? You know, what does that look like? And then we have the fact that most Americans call anyone from South America Latina or Latinx, mm-hmm. right? But what does that even really mean? Because Brazilians don't consider no. Most South American countries don't call themselves Latinx or Latinas. That's it's an American name that we've placed on a, a, a a continent on like such a wide variety of people, and so we try to kind of lump the Latina experience into one name. But every culture, every country, and every color, you know, every race has a different experience in that country. So it's just really interesting that when we're talking about immigration, particularly now, you know, it's so easy to kind of lump all Mexicans as one thing, all coming to this country for one reason. And I just think it's important that we can really hold space to the fact that we don't know why people are coming to this country. We don't know why people are, you know, the people's experience of where they come from. But what we can do is be really compassionate of the fact that, you know, we all have stories. And by bringing our stories into the United States, we're only making this country richer. Yeah. Ooh, that is so topical right now.
0: (laughs) Really feeling that. I also, just to add one more layer of complexity, maybe just not one more, maybe we're going to continue on this, which is the idea of like national borders Mm -hmm. and how that's a very recent thing in human history. Like Brazil, right the the lines around what is known today as brazil like there are many different bioregions and like tribal cultures okay. and that's a huge land not like just like the united states is a huge land where you know prior to the colonization of it there were many and to this day still are many tribes regions communities clans within that area so, I mean, a lot of people, when we learned about um, European history, we learned about nation states in Italy. And that's where I was like, oh, this a concept of Italy, one Italy, is not, that's new, mm-hmm. that's recent. And so I think that's an important thing to understand and keep in this conversation about belonging, particularly when it comes to ancestry, is to also remember that colonization and like the dominance of empire has created these borders that aren't necessarily true to like the historical context of belonging on yeah,
1: these lands. Yeah, 100%. I think that that's really important that you brought that in. I just think that, you know, humans, I think in general, have warred over territory for as long as, you know, human history. And I think that the war that we're placing on at the border right now is very. Similar yeah. to the kind of war mentality of limitations and othering and um, wanting to possess the resources, not wanting to share. And I think that it's kind of mind blowing to me that we've evolved in so many ways and yet we haven't in so many ways. You know, it, it, it yeah, it sometimes saddens me how little we've come in terms of being better humans to one another
0: hmm Yeah. I'm in that sadness as well. I'm definitely in that sadness as well and grateful that we are alive in a time where we can meet each other on Instagram and get on a podcast <laughs> and talk about it openly, yeah. you know, like holding the yeah. both end of that of like, we can, we can openly dissent. Yes. That's important too. Yeah. Well, um ugh, I just really love talking to you. It just I feels so good to go deep into these things the The thing I wanted to specifically chat with you today, which is woven deeply into everything we're talking about, all things belonging, um is specifically money and worthiness. Mm-hmm. And this is something people have asked me to talk about and I haven't necessarily felt fully uh, immersed in or perhaps even qualified to talk about. And something that you talk about, you have a program called Worthy, right? Worthy Women Rise, yeah. Worthy Women Rise, yes. And yeah, we offline have had conversations about this. So I think money is a thing in in our society. And it's, it's not something we can opt out of systemically. We need to make it and we need to spend it in order to, you know, I haven't, I haven't moved off grid and lived off the land yet. So it's, it's something that I find a lot of people in the conversation around like, oh, capitalism, it's a system that is just so unfair and it's violent and it's, hard to thrive in it. And it's based on privilege and all this, like, but also money is a thing Mm -hmm. that we need to be with. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's what I'd love to begin this conversation with you around is, is how, I mean, let's just dive in.
1: How are how do you view money today? It's a great question. You know, when I first kind of started thinking about money, it is very overwhelming the kind of narrative out there to um, particularly as an entrepreneur to kind of charge your worth and this idea that how much we make is inherently tied to our worthiness, right? So our worth and money are tied intricately together. How much you make determines how worthy you are in the world. And um, I think like you so poignantly said, you know, capitalism instills these values in us. And I think while, while we continue to connect our worth with money, no matter what way that you understand capitalism and no matter how much you rebel against capitalism, you're still stuck in a, in a kind of, of a prison of capitalism, if that makes sense, so you can you can kind of deny capitalism all you want and be frustrated and be angry with it, but while there's still a part of you that connects how much you make to how worthy you are, then then you're still you're still stuck, and so I believe that like really connecting. Money and worth and really looking at it is a really critical part of the conversation. How can we add nuance to this idea of charging your worth? How can we make sure that we're tying our sense of worth to something deeper, something greater, something that's not based on the productivity of, you know. Of the machine of capitalism and so for me like my relationship with money has evolved and right now I feel pretty clear on how much money I want to make and how much that money will be able to support my life and be able to support me in doing the things that I want to do I've become clear on how much I, I feel confident and good and charging for my services but it's come it's required a really deep introspection on what does money really mean in a capitalistic society?
0: Yeah, I feel like we need to slow this down a teeny bit and okay. define capitalism. Mm-hmm. Because I have had a few conversations with people where they have said to me, "But I love being able to shop online," mm-hmm. you know, or like, "I love that uh, competition has created." Um, Innovation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I love watching Shark Tank. I love these things that these moms on the side are creating these businesses on Etsy and whatever. You know, like I love it. So this is where I think it's important because I have I've noticed I've started talking in like sort of anti capitalist ways, and I I see confusion on people's faces. So maybe we can try to break it down a little bit of what do,
1: what do you mean when you talk about capitalism? So capitalism is. It's an economic and political system. So it's the way the, the engine in which moves the ways that we understand money and productivity. And we can talk about it from a federal level. It's about trade. It's about industry. And it's about putting, um, the emphasis on profit, um, by private ownership versus the state. So versus, the government collecting the money and then giving it back to the people the way we see it in um, in other systems of economy. So the reason why capitalism is talked about the way it's talked about is typically because when we look at a profit first system, we're looking at an, inherent in that is exploitation. Mm-hmm. If we're We can see this on like a spiritual level. If we're talking about growth only for growth's sake, which I think a lot of us are kind of possessed by this idea of growth. And like we always have to grow and grow and grow. Mm -hmm. If we look at growth only for growth's sake, then we, in in that of itself, we have to deny our own limitations. We have to push ourselves past the breaking point we have to completely like neglect the the physical form i mean growth for growth's sake is is like an invasive species it takes over the natural ecosystem around us mm-hmm. so in the same sense capitalism by being profit first they have to exploit the land they have to exploit human labor they have to exploit every everything in their path in order to make money yeah, I recently heard, not recently, this morning, I heard that Netflix had a projected growth of 500 new users and they fell off that projection. And now that's a bad thing, right? So now Netflix has to kind of like reevaluate their whole thing to decide how they want to move forward because it didn't meet their growth quota. But we never question like to what cost are we focusing on Growth on profits. And I think, of course, we are questioning it. We've been questioning it. I, I, you know, this is not a new conversation, but what's happening is we're still completely intertwined in exploiting human labor. We see that in the prison systems, um, we see that in burnout culture. We see that in the ways that we marginalize people who have identities that don't align with um, with the profits of capitalism. So it's important that when we talk about capitalism, that we are questioning why we feel the need to buy clothes, like buy something new every single day. Mm-hmm. Like w- this is a recent phenomenon. This idea of of consumerism. Is not something that's been in our culture for a long time. You know, it started in the industrial revolution. And then in the 1920s, there was this rise of this idea of like buy more stuff. Mm -hmm. And by the 60s and 70s, it became part of our culture. That's only what 50, 60 years ago. So there's still a lot of space for us to really dive into why are we so consumed with this idea of buying new things to make ourselves feel better. And it's hard to confront these things because of course we want it. We want the new iPhone. We want the new Mac. We want the new um trendy pair of clothes. And I'm not saying don't buy those things, but I am saying that it's important for us to interrogate a little bit of what we hope that buying all these new things will do for us. And is it really doing that?
0: Yes. Beautifully, beautifully stated. Yeah. I think um this idea of perpetual growth is so harmful particularly when i'm always framing this in like a earth-based mindset where like the earth is a finite amount of resources right and mm-hmm. like it takes mining her to i will gender her in this moment uh to to make your car run to turn on your power your lights to most of us, to uh, make your iPhone work, to you know, there's all these, all these ways that this consumerism and this drive for quote economic prosperity within a capitalist system to thrive, for us to make profits, for the stock market to do well, for our housing prices to go up, you know, it's, it's all based in this um, exploitation of the land and exploitation mm-hmm. of. Labor. And because it's a system that's founded in white supremacy, you know, in a system where, you know, the colonizers, which are from the European continent, uh, have established it. Uh, Folks who are not white have usually been at the bottom, the ones working the hardest, the ones, you know, in the prison system, the ones in the mines, the ones in the factories who are suffering, you know, mm-hmm. who are who are suffering. So it's, that has helped me understand when people say like capitalism is, you know, like I hate that we have to live in the system of capitalism. It's like when we buy our new iPhone, we are in it, you know? And so mm-hmm. I, for the longest time, I was like, can I be anti-capitalist and also make money and also have a nice computer? And that has been the hardest thing for me to be like, how can I be because I'm in this system, right? I'm in this system. And I also think it's not fair and not okay. What mm-hmm. do you think about that?
1: It's so hard. It's so hard. And I think it's so hard because it is no right or wrong answer. If we try to promote living on the land again, I don't think that that would work based on just how much, how many people there are and how important Intertwined we are, and yeah. how um, the systems that we have in place are ideally supposed to be social structures. And without those social structures, what are people going to do who can't live off the land? So, this idea of like going back to the getting off the grid and living off the land in some ways. That's an ableist notion. Not everyone can participate in that. So that's not saying don't do it. It's just saying that it's not possible for everybody. And so that it's important to look at, okay, if that's not a sustainable solution for everybody, then something needs to change. Something needs to be reevaluated. And because I think it's a it's a continual invitation for all of us, I'm not sure that there's one answer. I think we each have to do what we can to navigate the cognitive dissonance to navigate the fact that um in many ways i i drive a car and i know how much that car every time i get gas is extracting from the planet something extremely harmful um but i have to drive in order to make my life work in order to make right now maybe not in the future but right now so i just have to be continually asking myself, what am I willing to give up? And what can I not give up? So I'm going to come to peace with it for now, until I reevaluate, you know, maybe one of my goals is for Sunday to not need a car, in which case, I'm going to slowly work on structuring my life so that that's not a, you know, so that I don't need a car, but I need it right now. And continually punishing myself for needing to participate in a system that came before me, you know, doesn't help. It doesn't help any of us. And I think that, again, that's where the conversation of worth takes place. Because while we judge ourselves, criticize ourselves, hate on ourselves for something that we, in many ways, do not have a choice, you know, don't have um, obvious choices about, then we're going to we're going to stay stuck and so it's important that we give ourselves so much compassion for the fact that we are doing the best that we can and we can always be doing better but that doesn't mean that we're not we're not enough.
0: Oh my gosh, yes. So this this idea that we can if we can hold the complexity of like we are in this system and it feels unfair and not go into The phrase that's coming to me is like a poverty mindset of like, I don't want to participate. I don't want to encourage. I don't want to cause harm. So I'll step out of it. And then there's the suffering because you're still in it, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's what's really helped me see that like, oh, women and marginalized folks, like we need to make money so that we can participate in the liberation of all. So here's the thing that trips me up, which is the charge what you're worth thing. Oh, like, aren't we worth so much more than like 150 an hour? Like, if we really talk about like value and worth yeah. of who we are and our gifts, that's where it trips me up quite a bit.
1: Yeah, I have no idea who came up with that phrase, but it's the worst thing in the entire world. Yeah, I mean, if you think about like, why are football players or athletes in general paid the amount that they are? Um, okay, for example, the NFL, football players are paid a lot of money, but in order to be, to be there, you have to play football in college and college players don't make any money. So just because you're playing the exact same game and two different things, you're suddenly worth millions and millions of dollars. I mean, it makes no sense that teachers who are in the, on the ground every day showing up for these students make so little money. And then the people that we watch on a TV screen is making millions and millions of dollars. It doesn't make sense that one person or 10 people hold the majority of the wealth in this world. Are they somehow worthier? They typically tend to be white men. Are they somehow better than the rest of us? Was it that they worked harder, right? Because that's the other myth. The myth is like, if you work hard, you'll make more money. Mm -hmm. But I refuse to believe that Bill Gates works harder than a single mother of three refused to believe that. So it's important that we look at these kind of cultural stories, like charge your worth. If you want to make more money, you just have to work harder. And ask ourselves: Is this really? Is this really what I want to be perceiving the world as? Because it's a mindset. It's a perception. It's a way that we're seeing things. And. We don't have to see things that way. We can see our worth as something completely independent from money. We can ask ourselves, instead of charging our worth, we can ask ourselves how much, you know, we can look at our budget and decide how many clients do we want? And like, what does it look like if I charge this amount of money? And will that be able to sustain my life, you know, my life? And will I be able to feel good about the work that I do if I'm charging this amount, right? Like we get to ask ourselves these questions. And I think that's the coolest thing, Becca, is that when we start to untangle ourselves from cultural narratives, we now have space to come up with something that's uniquely ours. You know, we get to find a way to live our lives based on what we think is important, not what cultural thinks is important. So I think that that's everything.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important reframe, particularly for listeners who really feel like money is the enemy or has control over them. You know, versus like a tool, mm-hmm. versus something. You know, there's in like the new age world. It's like money is energy, and sometimes I feel that way, and sometimes I don't feel that way. But w- really, what I what I got from what you just said is is like instead of seeing money as like our oppressor, is seeing it as something that a tool for our own liberation. Like how do we make that reframe?
1: It's hard and I wanna be I wanna be cautious here because it I kinda sometimes take issue with the spiritual idea that money is just energy because it just comes from such a bloody background. Because if you're saying money is energy, then you're thinking about it in terms of everything is energy, right? So if you see everything is energy, then you say, okay, then a gun is energy. So it's really how you use the gun that matters. And it's like, okay, but actually this material, this gun that was created is problematic in and of itself. Money is problematic in and of itself. In order for there to be wealth, there has to be poor. It's just the way it works. People who are making billions of dollars are doing it, direct causation with exploitation of human capital, you know, human capital and earth capital. So I want to be conscious of that, that like, yes, 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 in many ways, money is just energy and we get to decide what energy we put into it. And at the exact same time, money is so much more than just energy. And it has a direct cause and effect relationship with exploitation and marginalization and oppression. So how do we hold both? I think that's the invitation and the question how can we hold both without either of those things making meaning that we are somehow inherently bad, Mm. right? Like how can we hold the fact that like we're humans exploring how on earth to untangle from these really horrendous systems while also honoring the fact that we have to participate in them. So I think it's important that we see that money is a tool and that if we put money in the hands of people who you know, have been oppressed, that's going to change everything. And at the same time, if this is a a nugget that I got from um, my friend, McKenna Held, Um, I interviewed her for my podcast. And she was like, if the problem can be solved with money, it's not really a problem. And that really sat with me, because we typically think that poverty will be eradicated with money. But we see how we put money into things and it still doesn't eradicate the problem because the problem in her mind, and I I kind of am on board with this, is not money in and of itself, but it's how we perceive lack and abundance. It's how we perceive others and ourselves. It's how we understand human relationships. Because we have all the money in the world right now to eradicate all of the problems. Do you think that that would really eradicate the problems, though? I don't think so. Yeah. We have so many resources in the United States, and yet we're still having this, this border crisis. Why is that? I don't think it's because of lack of money. I think it's because of our perception of lack of money. You know, billionaires can be operating in lack and I believe that they are because if you are hoarding billions of dollars, that's what it means to be a billionaire. You literally must have billions of dollars in assets, which means you're hoarding that type of money. You are operating in lack. no one needs to hoard that amount of money. There is, there's a certain amount to like protect yourself. Sure. To make sure that if anything happens, you know, you're buffered, but billions and billions, that's unnecessary. Right. So I like to see these as like abundance and lack. And if, billionaires are operating out of lack. What does it mean then to operate out of abundance? And I would see it as, you know, the giving away, the remembering that what you give comes back, you know, the cycle of giving and receiving.
0: Mm -hmm. Whoa, that is really blowing my mind that if you're a billionaire, you are living in a scarce mindset. Mm Wow. Wow. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, do you have any rituals or or um, practices you give your clients or work with on yourself to cultivate a, an abundance mindset? I feel like there must be listeners here who are like, oh, I definitely feel that lack. I definitely operate in scarcity. Like, How can I shift that?
1: I think the beautiful thing about abundance mindset is that it doesn't it doesn't have to have anything to do with money. And there's truly abundance everywhere. And so notice, first off, one of the things that I suggest is to notice what lack feels like in your body versus what abundance feels like in your body. Notice when you're feeling abundant, notice when you're feeling in lack, because that's information. You know, if you're feeling in lack around a certain thing, that's telling you something and that's important to know. Um, if you're feeling abundant in something, that's something to know and something to get curious around. So once we start to like, deepen into our body awareness and notice the spaciousness of abundance then we can start to cultivate it in places where we feel lack i am always under the kind of notion the the kind of style of my teaching is that everything is information and so when we are in lack that's an opportunity to get curious not to get judgmental mm. and i think when we judge we push away when we judge we separate and so it makes sense that when we're in pain or experiencing discomfort that we want to push that away. But the opportunity here is to bring it closer so that we can then hold space for it, so we can learn from it. And so wherever there is lack, there's probably also fear, there's probably also contraction, there's also probably some belief systems that probably most likely stem from childhood around what it means to be abundant. And so instead of dismissing it and say, "Oh, I never want to be in lack, lack is bad, I want to be always abundant. It's like, okay, let's do the shadow work of really diving into why are you feeling lack right now? Where did you learn, you know, to be in fear around the Um, How can you hold space for this part of you that feels in lack? How can you honor um, this experience? And as we do that, we start to befriend ourselves. We start to, instead of seeing ourselves as an enemy that is in the way of what we want, we start to see ourselves as human and as an integrated whole. And so in the honoring of the lack and not being afraid of the lack, we make more space, so to speak, in abundance.
0: Yeah, I can't help but think from an ancestral perspective, like uh, and an epigenetic perspective, right? This inherited trauma, mm. particularly around money and productivity. I think what's coming becoming clearer. I'm very visual, so when I listen to people, I like see mm. pictures. And so what I was seeing is this like this web of from one generation to the next, but also with this immigration story that nearly all, if not all of us have in our past, right? Mm -hmm. And how many folks made the immigration move because of economic opportunity, because of money, right? And so within that, there is often like uh, an experience of poverty, an experience of homelessness, an experience of being hungry. That is certainly true. In my ancestral narrative, I can think of my father's mother's mother, my great-grandmother, Philomena, who came over from Poland through New Orleans at the age of six, Mm. like stole food on the ship, poor as can be, and then worked in a shrimp factory, immigrant, six-year-old Polish immigrant working Mm. 14-hour days in a shrimp factory, bleeding hands to make money. And then her house burnt down and she was living on the street, like crazy, crazy story. And I'm thinking like, how did that weave its way through the gender, my father's line, you know, mm-hmm. to me, and just seeing like the stories that we tell or feel in our bodies, you know, that, that experience of like the low bank account and the full body trigger around like, am I safe? You mm-hmm. know, and will I, will I be okay? And I often tell myself when I feel that like you will sleep in a bed tonight, you have enough food to eat mm-hmm. and going through the worst case scenario. If the worst case scenario happens, I live in my parents' basement. If the worst case scenario happens, I, my friends will house me. If the worst case scenario happens, like whatever it is, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's my practice of when I feel that experience because I, I do not have the experience of growing up poor, but I sometimes feel it in my body. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how much of that is, you know, the, the cultural narrative, but how much of that is an ancestral narrative that's been handed down and how many of us have that story, mm-hmm. particularly coming from like an immigration story within the past several generations. Oh, and war <laughs> mm-hmm. and two world wars, you know, and all these times when Or the, you know, the the dust bowl or there, I can just think of so many times throughout history. I'm just thinking where I am now on Turtle Island in North America, where there's been that story and how that's impacted us today and our feelings around abundance and lack.
1: I mean, let me tell you, the human condition is a condition of struggle, Mm -hmm. you know, and if we look at our ancestors and we look at what they've had to navigate, it's really, really hard sometimes to, to listen to the stories. And I think that's why we're so fascinated by kind of movies about World War II and World War One. I. I mean, because we, that's where we come from. We come from a, a history of struggle. So I think when we're undoing some of this money stuff, it requires a deep tending to the fact that this isn't just ours, but it's probably intergenerational. And also, again, I don't think that while capitalism churns its nasty, you know, systems that we can feel 100% good about making money. I just don't think that that's possible. And I, I wish I could say some really nice, you know, sprinkler with fairy dust statement about how money is fine and every, but like, I really don't think that like, while, um, People are continually being exploited while we're having things like what's happening at the border, while we're continuing to not atone for our past with slavery. While these things happen, I don't think that money can be completely blood free. Mm. However, I do think that cultivating abundance can help us to detach ourselves from believing that if we are in lack, that means that there's something wrong or bad with us. Mm.
0: Yeah, bringing the compassion to the parts of us that feel scared.
1: Yeah, yeah. This is a hard topic, and I think – um, this is why a lot of people don't like to talk about this or don't like to look at this or like to take a more kind of black and white approach to money is because the the complexity is hard to hold. And I think we want the quick answers and we want to, you know, feel good about money so that we feel justified in being entrepreneurs. I mean, listen, I've been making money as my own boss for, gosh, I've been a full-time entrepreneur since 2015. So four and a half years and Five and a half. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Five years. Wow. It's just, no, I can't do math, Becca. I can't do math. It's four <laughs> years. Anyway, point is, it's like I know the, the difficulties of like charging an amount of money that is that you made up, you know? I mean, my partner, he sometimes is such an awe what we do as, you know, online coaches. And he's like, you literally pull money out of thin air. <laughs> mm. And in many ways, that's that's true. And it's mind-blowing to some people. And um, I've really had to, like, look at my worth and decide, like, am I going to spend my entire entrepreneurial career like gnawing at my, my nails in anxiety about whether or not I should charge this or not, you know? And mm-hmm. I finally had to kind of be firm with myself and make this decision of like, I refuse to, to believe that I have to be poor doing what I love.
0: Yeah,
1: I refuse to believe that that's my reality. I, I'm not energetically available for that reality. What I am energetically available for is that money is going to be complicated always. And I'm okay with that. But I'm not going to suffer to make to, to make money doing what I love.
0: Yeah, I think the same could be applied to folks who have a nine-to-five or a job where they have an employer mm-hmm. and are maybe not asking for more money or are have reached some sort of cap or ceiling mm-hmm. and are staying because they think like that's the best they can get or do or like it's off. The reciprocity isn't there. What they're receiving doesn't match the output mm-hmm. that they're giving, you know, whether it's physical labor or emotional labor or whatever it is. But in seat time, technology, you know, gnawing away at your eyeballs. Like these are things that we have to think about. And I I do want to touch upon this idea of productivity and worth. Yes. Which you just said, I don't want to suffer. You know, I have had my own journey, had a particularly wild ride beginning of this year, really looking at um, this idea of internalized capitalism, Mm -hmm. this idea of maybe the unconscious ways we're still playing into the system. And what really feels true for me is like treating myself like a machine or a factory worker. And when I, I use, when I talk about this, idea of treating myself like a factory worker, I really do think about the industrial revolution where a lot of these systems really um, sort of hit their stride, so to speak, Mm -hmm. where it was about how many widgets or whatever you can put together in an hour. And -hmm. that's how this hourly clock in, clock out framework came to be. And it's still very true, especially now with e-commerce in the whole warehouse uh, culture Mm -hmm. that is growing now that everyone's buying things online. Uh, these pickers, particularly for like Amazon or walmart.com, where they'll get fired if they don't run around these like four football field sized warehouses and like get our, you know, (laughs) night cream and (laughs) lube and and smartwatches, you know, as quickly as possible. So it's still very present for some folks. And I really want to acknowledge that privilege and some that people have it, some people don't. But this idea of resisting the need to take a rest or a break Mm -hmm. because I'm somehow losing the game Mm -hmm. or I don't deserve it. And this, this internalized productivity uh, judgment that I have been working through that I really thought was like not there. And then it came back Mm -hmm. and I was like, Oh, we just have a new level to work on.
1: So yeah, what what are your thoughts on that? I'm all about naps and advocating for rest. I think that it's possible for all of us to cultivate rest and space for relaxation, even with our crazy schedules, everyone is busy, everyone's got a bajillion obligations. And we can, of course, say, well, this particular person, you know, has all of these things going against them. And I honor that. And I know that every lived experience is different. But I still believe that like, there is a way that we can all incorporate rest on some level in our lives, but we don't do it. And we find excuses not to do it. Because so much of our sense of worth is tied to our productivity, it's tied to our to do list, it's tied to how much stuff we get done in a day and how accomplished we feel. That feeling of accomplishment is like an addiction to drugs. It it makes us feel this high. It gives us the sense that we're competent, that we're good human beings, but it's all an illusion. It's all, you know, like a social construct that hey listen is somehow also tied biologically i mean mm-hmm. if you think about it like in in like uh, when we used to live in more tribal systems as a whole you know uh, we very much were uh, needing to be productive as a member of society in order to contribute and contribute but there's a difference between contribution to a society and exploitation of your mental health and your physical health to a society and i don't think if we go and look at like indigenous cultures and if we tune ourselves to the pace of nature and of life their exploitation isn't a part of that you know it's all about giving to the whole because it gives you more it's about that idea that like it, it's kind of like i'm um, what am i trying to say like when we light a candle and then we use that candle to light another candle it only mm. lights up the room even more it doesn't take away from you right that's mm. i think the, the ways in which we can approach rest which is If we give ourselves compassion and space to rest our bodies when it needs rest, we are only giving to the world more. We're only honoring the world more. And we're slowly cracking away at this idea that somehow being good in the world means burnout.
0: Oh, yes. Yes, and this whole concept around you know, and massive productivity, and the only way to be good is burnout, is relatively recent in yes. human history. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm glad you brought up the the pace of nature because I think about our ancestors who were pastoral, you know, who lived, and and to this day there are still farmers, but most of us aren't, and who who their livelihood depended on the, the land, and that is hard work,
1: mm-hmm. but it's
0: not hard work year round.
1: Uh-huh.
0: You know, and there were seasons like spring is planting, summer is tending,
1: uh-huh.
0: autumn is harvest, and that's often the hardest work of the year. And winter is dreaming and resting. You uh-huh. know, those are like archetypes within many indigenous frameworks. And then within that, there is no technology. There, it, you know, historically, there was no technology, there was there were opportunities to stare at the sky
1: mm-hmm. for
0: 10 minutes there were moments in the day where the heat was high and your body wants a, to take a nap under the shade of a tree that this is truly our natural way of being so when you first thing you said was i'm a big believer in naps i know you and i have talked about how much we love the nap ministry trisha hersey's yes. work and i just listened to her episode on um On the Healing Justice podcast. Mm. And she talks about napping as uh, napping for social justice and napping as a way of healing for her ancestors. She's a woman of color. She's descended from folks who were enslaved in the South. And she went into slave narratives about 20 hours a day picking cotton, constantly giving birth in the fields, a midwife taking the baby, continuing to pick cotton. And so she would do these. Uh, performance pieces uh, where she, in Atlanta, where she'd have cotton around and she'd pick it and then she'd lay down and she'd sleep. Mm. And she'd ask other people to come and lay down with her and sleep. And it was like, this is too, this is, I'm sleeping for my ancestors who couldn't sleep. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, wow. So when we nap, we're napping for all the folks who couldn't,
1: mm-hmm. you
0: know, like napping as like a form of, reparations. Rest is reparations. That's what she says. So yeah, that's just a powerful way of, of looking at it, I think, to help us move out of this feeling of guilt yes, for resting and feeling like burnout is like a natural symptom yes. of success. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I want to be conscientious too that it's interesting how oftentimes when we're talking about this, we kind of immediately go to like, well, I don't want to become lazy. Yeah. You know, like if I give myself the rest that I need, I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to become lazy and I'm never going to want to pro- be productive again. And I'm like, I have no doubt that if you gave yourself total permission to be lazy for as long as you need, that you'll find your equilibrium again. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of say that like, um, I, I talk a lot about psychology of um, of childhood and, and how that affects us into adulthood. And so, like, if we didn't get our needs met as a, as a child, um, we grow up into quote unquote needy adults. We we grow up into adults who feel like our needs are never met. Because the needs were not met, so it's not that we're now needy because our needs—we feel like our needs aren't met. It's because we literally did not have our needs met. As we meet our needs, we stop having so many needs. Wow! So like as we give ourselves permission to be lazy and to swing the pendulum the other way, we're going to find an equilibrium. This is the same thing when we're talking about, um, disordered eating and um, binge eating is that I often invite my clients to give themselves permission to eat whatever they want. And what they find is that the reason why we we binge is because of deprivation. Always. If there's a binge, there's deprivation. That's, that's, that, that has to be that way. Um, it's how the cycle works. So if we stop depriving, we don't binge. If we stop ourselves depriving the pleasure of naps, we won't need to... Um, then have these whole binge episodes of laziness. Does that make sense? Mm, It's like we need need to undo this idea that if we are not productive, it means that we're lazy. Give yourself space to be as lazy as you want for as long as you want and your body is naturally going to move you into work again. The body likes to work. Truly, the body yes. likes it. it it's likes, built for it. It's built for it. It likes to move. It likes to dance. It likes to um, explore. I mean, the body is so wild and amazing, and it has so much wisdom, but we've forgotten how to listen to it. And then we we named that you know, as laziness, but that's not what it is.
0: Yes. Isn't it? I mean, it's true for me. I wonder if this is true for you. That on the last day of my vacations, whether I'm I'm off somewhere or I'm just on a staycation at home, I get this. I mean, to me, it feels like a deluge of ideas for my business, for my work, for writing, for podcast ideas, for projects. Like it just floods into my system when I fully let go. A
1: hundred percent. It's the best feeling. Yeah, And I find that, you know, because like I'm currently in grad school and I run my business full time and I also um, offer therapy at a community clinic, um, I'm stretched pretty thin right now. You know, I also am in a relationship and want to give attention to my relationship and my friendships and my family. I mean, there's a lot there's not a lot of, uh, you know, open time. But then I find that, wait a minute, but there is a lot of open time, like the five minutes in the car before I go into the clinic that I can close my eyes and give myself some deep breaths, or the moment right before bed where I'm not really quite sleepy yet, but my mind is active by watching something. What if I could turn that off and just spend time like with the open window, like listening to the breeze and listening to the bustle of the city around me, right? So like, when we think of rest, sometimes I think we think it has to be these big, luxurious things. But really, we can find rest in any moment. You know, rest is an internal state of surrender, of, of letting go. And I think we can find that at any moment. We just have to practice it.
0: Hmm. Yes. Oh, beautiful. Thais, I am just loving talking to you. Every time I talk to you, I feel so invigorated by your energy and by your clarity. Um, I, it's just very inspiring to talk to you. I have one more question for you. Okay. (laughs) When do you feel abundant? What are you experiencing in your life when you feel abundant?
1: Mm. You know, I feel abundant when I give myself permission to eat something that I'm, I'm craving something that I'm wanting. And like, then I sit down and really allow myself to enjoy it. Um, that feels really abundant to me. When I like take a moment and I step outside and I let the sun kind of hit my face. And like I, I look at the palm... I live in LA. So I look at the palm trees and the breeze. And I just feel so overwhelmed by the beauty of of the weather here. And like in those moments, I feel really abundant. Um, I have a 10-pound dog. <laughs> His name's Chewy. He's a terrier rescue mix. And um, whenever like I close the computer and just give myself over to him and let me play with him and kind of shut down the to-do list for even just a minute or two. I feel abundant. So for me, like the abundance comes in these little moments where I offer myself the um, the space to feel pleasure. And I think that pleasure is an instrumental part of life that we deprive ourselves of. You know, we think that life has to be hard. Life is hard already, you know, what if we were to give ourselves permission to feel into the little moments of pleasure that's all around us? I think that there's this beautiful poem. I don't think there is this beautiful poem, and I don't remember exactly how it goes, but it's something like God's heart breaks every time you walk by a flower and not admire the beauty. You know, something Mm. along those lines of like, God is delighting us. The universe, this planet is delighting us every moment. And I know that right now we're so viscerally aware of the damage that we caused and the um, catastrophicness of this moment. And let us not forget that while it's here, we may as well soak in the beauty of this planet.
0: Yes, I'd say that right now, It's like height of summer here in the Northern Hemisphere, and I'm in Northern California. My garden, I feel rich as fuck. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. when I go into the garden, it just – and just like the flowers, walking around the neighborhood. I went on a walk yesterday with a friend, and there were flowers everywhere. Mm -hmm. Some would be, quote, unquote, considered weeds. And I just was like, look at this abundance wow, mm-hmm. look at all of this. I like, I receive it. Yes. Like I, I receive and my garden, you know, I've tended to, and I'm just like, I receive your beauty. Mm. I receive it. And thank you. You know, it's just, it's a beautiful thing to open up like access to in ourselves.
1: Yes. Oh, I love that so much. I love that you are, you gave yourself that gift. It's so, listen, you know, like, we can hold both. And while we're fighting for justice and while we're understanding and untangling ourselves from worthiness and money, while those things are true, we can also delight in the human experience. Yeah. We can hold both. We can hold both.
0: Yeah. Thais, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. I adore you. I think you are just so
1: cool. The <laughs> love is so mutual. If you're ever in SoCal, please hit me up. Okay. <laughs> um, is there, Tell
0: I will put all your information in the show notes at belongingpodcast.com, but where can people find you um, hanging around and what can you tell them about?
1: Well, I am usually found hanging around Instagram. That's kind of my jam right now. Um, So you can find me at Sky. And then, of course, if you're enjoying all the things on my Instagram and you feel called to come into my uh, newsletter community, you're welcome to do that. I do not send out many newsletters anymore with my time constriction, but it is something that I will be doing once I'm done school again. So you're welcome to join me there. And then, yeah, if you have any questions about who I am in the world, my website Tayskye.com has all the info.
0: Yeah, and you can also binge past seasons of her podcast
1: Reclaim. Oh, yes. Particularly one episode <laughs> with a certain Becca. <laughs> was extraordinarily phenomenal it was so good having you on the podcast and I think what we talked about was so in alignment with this as well about yeah ancestry and how do we connect to the land so I recommend for anyone who if you enjoyed this go check out my interview of Becca
0: awesome well thank you again so so much and um, I'll see you soon thank you so much for listening I know your time is sacred, and I hope this episode infused some inspiration and meaning into your day. For show notes, links, and references from this episode, you can go to belongingpodcast.com. Also, be sure to subscribe to Belonging on Apple Podcasts, and if you have a moment, leave a review. This helps my little podcast reach more listeners, and I would be ever so grateful.